Hello and welcome to We've Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we've seen the long-awaited Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Tarantino's 60s movie LA love letter thing. I was really looking forward to it. So was I. I'm looking forward to any new Tarantino, to be honest. Well, not me, actually. I wasn't... uh, um I wasn't looking forward to it because it was Tarantino. I was looking forward to it because it was about the movies in the 60s. and mm. You know, so kind of, I thought that would be great fun. And it was. I always look forward to Tarantino because he makes movies for the cinema, I guess. There's like, they always just come alive on the, on well, the cinema Well, he makes screen. a particular kind of film for the cinema. I'm, well, not, yeah. I'm not a fan. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But um, I just, I know, well, I'll be, I know I'll be interested. And I mean, I, I think... He'll make beautiful pictures and, you know... Well, I, I always find this film superficial. I think they're always about they're always about pop culture and you know, and he you know, he's I suppose there's a kind of they're fodder for philosophers because they can see Baudrillard in all of his films. Right. So it's about the hyper real, it's about not making distinctions between kind of, you know, the real and and, and the image and so on. But actually, I just think that they're superficial, that they are often about a conception of life and people that is drawn from the movies. Uh, and then he, he never explores it with any depth. He always moves on to the next thing. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a fan. Mm. And there was particular cause for trepidation with this, at least as far as I was concerned. Because, um, you know, what I knew about it, what was kind of the scuttlebutt early on was it was about the Manson murders. It was about the Tate-LaBianca murders in uh, August 1969, which are infamously incredibly gruesome. Yes. Charles Manson told his family members, to, as they went out to commit, to make them as gruesome as possible. Yes. And um, one I didn't see coming, and this will be spoilers from here on in, is that Tarantino completely twists what happens. And actually, the, 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 these I, two I, junk jackasses played by Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Brad Pitt, kill the Manson family and save the day. No, 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 it's not that simple. I mean, well, first of all, I'm not sure that... that it's, I mean, it is conceivable. I mean, I don't know the history, but it is conceivable that members of the gang, you know, attempted one thing that didn't work out and then succeeded with Sharon Tate. Because from what I remember, the whole, the whole Manson murders were... A kind of a sociological phenomenon when I was a kid. I remember in like third or fourth or fifth grade, you know, there there was a little bookshelf of books that we were encouraged to take out upstairs, downstairs, and things like that. And one of them was Helter Skelter, you know, which was like um, I don't know if it was a novelization or you know or an account of 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 those murders. You know, it was very much uh, in the air in the early 1970s. And my understanding is that. Uh, um, Manson was in was 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 he was part of Hollywood or he was trying to become no, no. part of Hollywood. And not not only was he part of but he was involved in the murder, right? And that's not been my understanding and that's that's ah. kind of one of the one of the kind of notable things I guess about it is that he never killed anyone. That's the oh idea. really? Is that it? Yeah, no, yeah, okay. but he's been in prison forever and well, he died a couple of years ago, didn't he? As as the leader of the cult. Mm. But no, he sent his people out to to commit the murders. Ah, okay. Um so um, that was kind of cause for concern because I thought Tarantino, like, he, it's not like he shied away from from violence and uh, things like that before. And you think he, this is um, 
this could be the most tasteless thing I've ever seen in my life. Was what I was thinking. There were pretty tasteless moments. There were, uh, <laughs> but what I didn't. But, but actually, the way that ending works, I think, is kind of the absolute proof that if you're killing the right people, you can do anything you want. The audience was laughing and cheering, they, oh, and they was... and it was cartoon violence, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Um, and uh, you and you know, if it had been the other, if he'd been doing that as like a real enactment of the murders, you you wouldn't have, you know. Wouldn't have but actually, for. there's a paradox there because I think the audience was also cheering because it was women getting their heads bashed against telephones, right? Because it's so inconceivable for that to happen in film. It almost never happens in film. You know, that level, yes, that level of brutality is always reserved for men, right? So, you know, for it to be happening for women in this thing was, like... That's certainly not how I read the oh well, response. I mean, when have you seen women getting bashed like no, that? No, I think that might be true, film? but that's not how I read the audience response, or it's not what I felt I responded to. Oh, well, I... Act, but, um... Well, I think I did respond to that, actually, that, you know, you're so kind of shocked and surprised by what's happening um, that it kind of makes it funny. Um, anyway, I'm, th- I'm thinking about it because, you know, Tarantino has so often been accused of being, like, really sexist and so on, and I think he is, you know. Uh, uh, so, you know, the women in this film, they all have, like, really tiny supporting roles. They're always in the background. They're always girlfriends or whatever. But actually, that moment, I thought, was a moment of... You know, egalitarianism, right? It's like well, there's the, a fight. The, the women get beaten up. Everybody gets men. treated the same in that fight. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly true that Margot Robbie gets an incredibly thankless task because she's got nothing to do as Sharon Tate. And she, she plays Sharon Tate as this um, very young, kind of new to Hollywood person who's been in one or two movies, goes to see. I mean, this is substantially her role is she goes to see um, one of her own movies. A Mad Helm film with Dean Martin, where she plays. Uh, a supporting role and she sits in the theatre and you know, other people are kind of laughing and cheering at all the right points and she gets incredibly proud and she's smiling away and she loves seeing herself on screen and then she leaves us the cinema a few hours later beaming and that's about it and then six months later she's heavily pregnant yes I love that I... but, but like she's gone she's, she's got nothing she is the only reason she's there I think is that you know from what you from what you know of the Manson story that she will die later or, you, or at least you, you suspect you will because you don't see the twist coming and, yes, and she's just being set up for someone absolutely lovely and innocent and pure and with nothing interesting that's true but I think it's central because you know the legend is so involved in Hollywood lore right mm-hmm. so you know the house that Sharon Stone and Roman Polanski are renting was the house of Doris Day's son was a really famous producer right. and Doris Day's son was going out with Candace Bergen who you know was already on her way to becoming quite a big star right and Jay Sebring who is with her you know was that um, uh, uh, hairdresser agent uh, who was the basis of Warren Beatty's character in Shampoo mm. right so the film has kind of all of these yeah resonances that kind of touch on you know all of the Hollywood history of the periods, and 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 the pivot to that is is, yeah, the mm. Michael Robbie character. Yeah, though it's not portrayed as such. Really, she just—I mean, in terms of what she does, she just happens to be there. It's not an interesting role to be given as no, an actor. It's not an interesting role, but it's a pi- but it's a pivotal one. Yeah, um, it's not made interesting, which is you know where I think. I mean, you know, you can the accusations against Tarantino as sexist are uh, very convincing. The Margot Robbie role is one reason why. 
And then all of the other kind of, you know, uh, women in the film, the same. You know, the Italian wife, she's got nothing to do but scream, right? <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah, and so on. You. Yeah. I feel like um, as soon as the uh, twist happened and you realise that the Manson family are going to get the shit beaten out of them, um, the moment that that happened, I went, oh, I should, how did I not see it coming? Because it's called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And the reason that that's important is because in Inglorious Bastards, Tarantino's kind of fantasy um, about Nazi Germany, or Nazi France, actually. Um, that film starts off by saying, Chapter 1, Once Upon a Time in Nazi-Occupied France. And my mate Sam, uh, he went to see that film, and he told me, you know, I thought it was really unrealistic, that film. Like, <laughs> you know, Hitler didn't get murdered in the cinema. What's going on? It's, not, it's just weird. Yeah, and I said to him, "Well, the opening says once upon a time in Nazi-occupied France," and it turned out that he'd been in the toilet uh. for like the first four seconds of the film. Had come in after that, so he thought it was like supposed to be a faithful, right. you know, reproduction uh, reenactment of mm. actual history. So when all the weird stuff started happening, all the changes to history, it was like, "What the fuck is this?" Yes. And and that and the, and there was a part in that where you know uh, the cinema owner character is changing the lettering on the outside of the cinema, and she's putting up uh, L'Enfer by Clouseau, which is famously unfinished. Mm. It was never released. And like that's kind of one of these little things. Like This is a fantasy world for Tarantino. In, in his ideal world, Hitler dies on fire in a cinema, and L'Enfer gets released. Yeah, it's like a- and so, like also in Tarantino's fantasy world, a couple of idiots kill the Manson family, and Sharon Tate is able to live her life. Yes, I mean I'm still not sure about killing the you know the 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 family because you you're shown the ranch and there's like you know dozens yeah, and dozens they, they of them. Yeah, they killed them, but the right. but the murders didn't and happen. Is the point? Well, you know, not yet. That's the happy ending you get. Yeah, well, I felt very weird about that final shot. I must say, as much as I enjoyed everything leading up to it, the final shot where they all go into Sharon Tate's house. Yes, and it's a happy ending, and he get, and and also it's Leonardo DiCaprio's character's re-entry into Hollywood. You know, it's his thing is it's his career's ending, and now he's making a new friend. On the but other. I didn't read it that way at all. Again, I read it as my God, you know, he's done four films in Italy. They're probably going to be successful. You know, he's 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 just killed these people in his house the publicity the next day will revitalize his career <laughs> right true. and he's he, you know and he's now going up to Polanski's house which he's been hoping as will be his big chance right that you yeah know, isn't he lucky to live near Polanski but rendered bittersweet with what you know of what will happen in that house at some point yeah or in reality well maybe. well I mean that's sort of the idea there isn't it, at the end of this like it didn't happen you know, they no, stop. no, I don't read it that way. Because really? You read it as it could still happen tomorrow? Yes. I think, you know, because we know it did, right? I mean, if you wanted something to twist it to that extent, you wouldn't have given her the name Sharon Stone. You might, Sharon you, Tate. Sharon Tate. You would have given her, you know... Well, maybe, but on the other... But so then it, it does, we know But then it happened. does also say, you know, Friday, August 8th, 1969, which is the date that happened. Ah, uh, well, you know... I, yeah, I think that's I, the idea. It's, it's, it is meant to be rewriting it to that extent. It's meant to be saying, in an ideal world. You know, that's why I find that final shot kind of weird, because ultimately, this history doesn't change. And these willful murders... And, you know, I mentioned to you at one point, I wonder what Roman Polanski thinks exactly. of Exactly. I mean, if, he, if that's his intention, then I think it's a failure. Mm. You know, because, I mean, you know, my, I came out of the cinema thinking, oh, well, you know, poor Sharon. You know, it's not going to be long before she gets, you know murdered as well because 
you see the state of her pregnancy and you know what happened in real life. So, you know, I, I didn't take it as him mm. rereading because actually then that's not consistent. He doesn't rewrite everything else about Hollywood. He's very careful to use, you know, real posters, right, of B films, of... I absolutely agree. And I think that kind of what it comes down to is this is, like I say, this is inside Tarantino's head. If he could imagine Hollywood, he'd take everything that he loves, which is everything that he faithfully reproduces. Yes. You know, you get all of these... The film is a collection of parts of these wonderful pastiches of all types of movies and all types them. of TV shows with Leonardo... Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio even gets put in the Steve McQueen role, literally edited in, in uh, The Great Escape. I know. It's wonderful. I mean, I've had it's a fantastic wonderful. time. So this is like... Tarantino going, God, if Hollywood, you know, I love this, I love this, I love this, but I really don't like <laughs> that the Manson murders happen. So in my version, they actually, uh, we beat up the bad guys. Yeah, well... And bite their balls off. You may be right. I really didn't read it that way, but, you know, I might have to um, see it again. Mm. And I would be delighted to see it again, actually, because I, there are so many things that I loved about uh, the film. Uh, I think it's Brad Pitt's best role ever, right? Um, he's just kind of extraordinary and he plays it on all of these different levels you know with kind of a, a minimum of gesture and so on and, and a huge amount of confidence he's kind of a joy to watch and DiCaprio is phenomenal really you know because actually he's playing somebody who's dumb who's vain who's kind who's you know who's not too bright yeah, he's got every he's everything. got every facet right mm. and actually his imitation of B-movie acting or bad television genre acting is just incredible yeah. because he's doing it so well and you recognize it. You recognize it as that style of... Yeah? Yeah. So he's he's absolutely kind of um, extraordinary. Just a, a bliss to watch, really. Um, I think this is Tarantino's least self-conscious film. Ah, it's as this thought struck me like halfway through. This thought struck me actually during one of the scenes where DiCaprio was playing his Western baddie on TV yes. and they were playing it through as though it was a real scene. And this thought, this thought occurred to me that like this is every film I think that Tarantino, basically every film he's done, has been Tarantino playing, mm. playing with toys that he likes. But they've always had some degree of self-consciousness, maybe apart from Jackie Brown, which is mm. slightly different to the others. There've always been some degree of, as he, as he kind of intimated... Um, they everyone acts like characters from other movies. They don't act like people. Mm. You know, everyone talks with Tarantino's voice. I think mm. um, all the shots are cribbed from other movies, that sort of thing. And in this, the fact that it is so on the surface, it's so obvious, so blatant. That's what he's doing because it's about that. Means it's indulgent, but I I felt like in the very best way, it's a really enjoyable place to be for so much of it. Oh, I loved it! I loved despite it. the fact that not uh, kind of an awful lot is happening. Nothing. The plot doesn't move an awful lot no, during some of those scenes. Um, no, but, but there's you, a lot happening in terms of character. Exactly. In terms of the friendship between the two men, I think it's it's wonderful. I I I. Yeah. You know, when I was coming out of the cinema, I was thinking, is this what camp for straight people? <laughs> feels like right because you know so on the one hand I mean one of the things that he does so well is he cites things in a way that you recognize and then he shifts it right in a way that makes you laugh or surprises you yeah mm. but he's, he's kind of working with kind of a recognizable historical memory like a mediascape of pop culture of things you know people recognize I mean you know, to me, a lot of it was my childhood, right? Kind of watching Mannix and so on. 
uh, on television. Um, but the thing is that, you know, whereas I think camp undercuts or it always expresses a kind of hurt or, you know, this is just kind of like, um, you know, a knowingness, a, a, a twist on a joke, yeah? And, and I'm... I don't want to put that down. I don't. I don't think that's that's not nothing. I just think it's something different. But it is a kind of camp. Yeah. Could you elaborate? I'm not quite sure. I get what you're what you're going at. Um, the cigarette advertisement that ends the film. Right. The you red know? apples. Yeah. So everybody recognizes it. Everybody's laughing at you know at the joke of the tobacco, and everybody's laughing about how you don't get the sore throat. Yeah. Like yeah. There's a series of jokes, right? And, you know, you recognize those advertisements. You've seen them, even if it's only on YouTube, yeah? Mm. I mean, they were a staple. But then that last bit where it all ends and he hits his, you know, and yeah. he wraps him back, yeah? That's yeah. an undercutting of all he of that, He says the cigarette right? tastes like shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and has nobody noticed my double chin, right? Yeah. So, so it, like, if it didn't end with that, it would be too earnest. Is that what you said? Well, the thing is that he's undercutting or he's turning the recognizable aspect into a joke yeah mm. so so it's not only that the actor doesn't believe what he's saying you know we all recognize the falsity those gestures that he does with his face and his voice right like he's 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 moving his head to the camera yeah. with this kind of earnestness right everybody recognizes it and then that eruption of violence right yeah which is meant to be funny you know because it undercuts you know that that moment that you originally saw so, so you know, it does a lot of things that camp does, you know, but it's not quite camp, or at least to me. Mm. Anyway, I just thought it was an interesting idea because I, I did come out thinking, is this what camp for straight people is? Yeah, it's kind of interesting idea. Like I suppose I'm not familiar enough with, with camp, um, but I mean, I certainly, I certainly got the feeling. Maybe this is related. I certainly got the feeling that this is. Um, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio especially, but everyone playing dress-up. For sure. You know, there's a feeling of dress-up and playfulness. And oh, the whole yeah. Thing. We're it's getting to play at being movie stars in the film. You know, Brad Pitt gets to play at being the cool guy stuntman who looks like he does. Even though he does it like he does, he's fucking Brad Pitt. Like, he gets to play that. Yes, well, I mean, all of the roles in the film are all about performance and performing and... Yeah. Right, like, you know. But actually, I think one of the things that... One of the reasons that the film does work for me is that there are also layers of that. You know, so you so you have Leonardo DiCaprio as a, as a person who's lonely and needy, you know, and is having problems with alcohol, right? Yeah, and then you have his self-consciousness as an actor and his, you know, realization of his status and his slipping, to, like, you know, and then him playing all of these different roles and him even playing roles that he hadn't gotten, right? So there's all these layers of, of performance, right? Mm. But there's also something... Yeah, it is layers because you also see that what's underneath. It's anchored to a real character. It's anchored to a real ca ca uh, a character who feels, and you feel for him. Yeah, right. He's got no one else. Yeah, in his life except uh, his stuntman, which mm. I understand is is uh, is based on um, you know the relationship of Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham, you know, who then became a director, but who started off as a stuntman. And in fact, mm. you know, Hal Needham. Um, did a whole bunch of films that were just about car chases with Burt Reynolds. And I think Burt Reynolds directed a film which was about stuntmen, which I now forget the title of, but it was kind of... Mm. 
Yeah, Bert Reynolds also started in, in, was in television in that period. Um, so uh, I'm sure there are kind of resonances there, actually. Uh, anyway, the film is interesting to me, uh, along with all, all the other reasons we've mentioned and more than we will mention in a few moments, but because it's a landscape that I'm also um, engaged with that is part of my childhood that has all this lore that surrounds it, right? Mm. So one of the things that I found fascinating and also kind of rather touching about Tarantino is how much he loves, you know, those restaurants where, you know, he mm. makes a big point of showing you all the restaurants where, you know, all the stars hang out, right? They're kind yeah. of... Ne- Described you know, in voiceover as well. Yeah, they're like landmark places. They're, they're places of dreams, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> and he recreates them all. You know, mm. uh, and the movie posters and the marquees and, you know, the films showing in Cinerama, right? The drive-in. The drive-in. Mm. I mean, all of that. I thought I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a wonderful, it's a it's a really enjoyable, friendly, funny place to, to hang out when all that stuff's happening. Mm. Especially especially the stuff uh, on set, I think, with Leonardo DiCaprio. That stuff is great. Mm. And all the conversations that he has, as you mentioned, the, the clips of him that you see in previous movies that he's done, that sort of thing. They're joyous. And there's, yes. there's a, a huge amount of fun in those. Uh, there's, there's something, the one thing that interested me, which was um, a lot of care is taken in those, in those clip bits yes. to uh, really film them and portray them at, you know, as authentically as possible to mm. look as authentic as possible. So they're in, they're in the right aspect ratio, and they're black and white, and the camera moves are all the same. And like when you see his um, his uh, guest appearance on that uh, FBI, the TV um, show, like it looks exactly like a 1969 television yeah. program. But not only that, I love their discussion about it. You know, it's like Mystery Science Theater 3000 and then talking in the background over it. They're talking in the background and they're, and they're saying, I love that shot, right? Like, you know, yeah. when he's being filmed through the broken windshield, right? Yeah. yeah. And when ways, he jumps out of the car, Brad Pitt goes, that's a good leap. That's a good leap, yes. <laughs> but it's, it's really, it really is like MS, MST3K, mm. that bit. Like, if you go and watch clips of that, it, it, it's exactly the same, just the, vo- the voice is chiming in uh-huh. over the top. It's fantastic. I've never seen that. It's so really indulgent. Know. Um, you know, as I say, again, indulgent in the best but, uh, way. But one of the things that you see a lot in the film is people watching films and people watching TV. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's also a kind of an interesting commentary on TV, right? Like, you know, where one of the Manson people says, well, you know, we've grown up with TV and all we've grown up is like, you know, with killers. <laughs> so this is how we're going to get vengeance into the culture that has taught us nothing and but kill killing. the people who taught us to kill. To kill yeah. yeah. Which is a nonsense. <laughs> um, you know. But kind and and the film treats it as a kind of a nonsense, yeah, right? It does, like, yeah. You know, because uh, you can see how immersed uh, uh, Tarantino also was, you know, in television. Um and also the pop music, the the soundtrack music was everywhere. again fantastic, right? Which is something that you now expect of him, I suppose. Yeah. Mm. Um, but just to finish the point I was making about the the, the uh, authenticity of everything they try and you know build, for, uh, all the other media they try and build as it were. Um, you get these two sequences in which DiCaprio is playing this baddie in the Western TV show mm. that he doesn't really want to play and he's not going to be that recognisable and it's a bad moment for him in a way. Um, and the, and it's these scenes with I think I think it's Timothy Oliphant, isn't it? Mm. And they play these through. Actually, the second one isn't anyway. So they play these through in, and, and they are not shot as 
a 1960s TV show, they're just the film playing. Yeah, they're filming the filming. Right. Rather than but they're not filming the filming. They are playing as though this were just a real Western film. And, like, the shot selection is good shot selection. It's, it's like it's storytelling shot selection. It's not saying, if we step back for a moment, these are the shots they would pick. You know, it's, it's not like it, there, there seems to be a kind of contemporary style to it. Well, the film works on certain levels, on different levels. You know, so there's the thing, for example, the shootout, right? Or, you know, but then there's also this incredible, like, self-consciousness, right? You know, the bit in the saloon where he, he th- throws up his line, right? The conversation with the little girl as they're waiting, like, to go on, right? Yeah. You know, kind of. Um, and, and, yeah, so, so I, think it's, I think there are different things going on that are filmed differently. And that also... You know, the DiCaprio is so fantastic because he's playing each of them uh, in a different way, in a different style. You know, so for example, the scene where he breaks down where the, you know, the girl tells him, You're the best actor I've ever worked with. And, he, you know, the best and, acting I've ever seen. It's yes, like and he wells up. Like he's accepting an Oscar. Yes, it's like so stylized, you know, yeah. it's, it's brilliant, right? And, and greatly skilled, I think. But the way these are shot, the way these are shot, there's a real blurring of lines in a way that there isn't in anything else. In everything else, there's, there's absolute distinction about what you're looking at. You can tell from the style of the shot, the colour, the frame, mm. you, exactly what you're supposed to be looking at. But in these, there isn't. So like the thing is playing through as though it were just a, a 2019 movie. But, it, but, you are also, but you're watching them play through this TV show from 1969... And so, for instance, you have this camera shot where the camera comes around, it tracks around on Timothy Oliphant to end up in a two-shot on Oliphant and um, uh, DiCaprio. And that's when he fucks up his line. And they go back, and the camera goes back too. So, like, it, this is the camera that's filming this. Mm. But also, like, when it, when it cuts, you know, you don't see the setup from the other one. It's cut as though it's just a regular, you know. Mm. It's, only, it's only the one thing right at the end of the second scene where he's holding the little girl hostage that the camera eventually cuts to... You see the you see the crew the filming yeah. it. So like there's, a, you know it's it's there's a blurring in there that, it, that there isn't anything else. Then I don't think maybe means on actually, but it's very it is playful and it contributes to it contributes to a, a weird feeling. But it's that feeling of I think playfulness and indulgence mm. that the film I mean, just wants everything it wants. I think for me this is his best film since Pop Fiction, you know, which is very different. And I think the reason why it's his best film. It's because it's, to me, the film where he's got most to say, right? Like, you know, he's a director, he's somebody who's in love with movies, and he's an actor, you know, and he knows about Hollywood and about careers and about acting and actors and the gradations of stardom and, you know, people's vanities and egos and, yeah, and their feelings. And, and actually, you do see all of that. It's a very, very rich film, you know. I mean, this is kind of the film where, you know, Tarantino has a lot to say that's kind of worth listening to. He knows about this stuff. I'm not sure, you know, that he knew about any of the other stuff. No, I mean, everything else he made is because he has seen movies about that stuff. He likes the movies. That's right. I think so. Even Uh, Jackie Brown, probably. Which, I I mean, Jackie Brown is based on, you know... um, black exploitation films. Well, and uh, a novel by um, Elmer Leonard, isn't it? Right. Which you know, and he was he was a screenwriter. All these novels got adapted into um, sort of trashy-ish films. Can Very. you can you even remember what the Hateful Eight was about? I mean, yeah, it was it was basically the thing, but with racism. 
Yes, I mean, I, you know, I can't, I can't even remember. I think it had a great about. tone. I mean, but, um, all, but all that stuff about shooting it in seventy mil because that's the most beautiful thing, and the thing about breaking the guitar, which was this real old guitar that they smashed up and went, oh, sorry. Yeah. Like it's it's um, you trying just trying to make your own cool stories about how you made the film. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I barely remember it. Um, I barely remember Kill Bill two. You know, you remember moments of Kill Bill. I remember moments. Uh, of uh, Django, Django Unchained, yeah, Django Unchained, and not all the moments I remember are good ones. Um, you know, so um, do you think this is racist? Yes, I mean, not in um, in um, you know, overt, crude way. Though, you know, I think it maybe kind of it's kind of overt and crude. I mean, if you look at the characterization of Bruce Lee, for instance, that's what I was thinking of. Um, you know, I mean, I think what happens is it really expresses white privilege. Mm. You know, if you're asking me, like, you know, did uh, 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 Quentin Tarantino want to make a joke about Bruce Lee being Chinese? I would say no. He's making a joke about kind of this conception, you know, that he's an unbeatable fighter, you know, in relation to someone like Muhammad Ali. Right. But it ends up looking really racist. Well, the joke is also, I think, on the um, image of Bruce Lee. You know, the guy who stands in a stance and goes, Wah! Yes. you know, which at one point when they're having the fight, Brad Pitt even does a little Wah! to take the piss yeah. out of him. You know, that's true. Um, all, the joke all, is on that. too. All kids of a certain age went. Wah! Yeah. And, and, and it's also the kind of you're introduced to Bruce Lee as this grandstanding guy who's talking to all these guys on the set about you know, what rest, uh, what what uh, what Cassius Clay can do and what rip, what the difference between martial arts fighting and uh, boxing and how in martial arts you're not allowed to kill the other guy, mm. but I wish you were because, you know, and it's, and it's... It's an off moment in the film. I think, sure. yeah, it is. On the other hand, I do think that the film tries to redeem that by kind of bringing him back into, uh, you know, the role that he played in Sharon Stone's success. Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate, sorry. <laughs> Sharon Stone, it'd be a very different film if it was about Sharon Stone. Yes, okay, it would sorry. all be those like four frames where she crosses her well, legs. Well, keep correcting me as uh, <laughs> you know my names uh, slip. Um, so, yeah, but I think kind of... Uh, yeah, mm. so, I mean, I'm sure there's a historical basis, probably, of uh, Bruce Lee having taught Sharon Stone. He... he you know, I think he taught karate to a whole bunch of people. I think it might even be Steve McQueen as well. He definitely. I'm sure that side of it know. is absolutely accurate. It's not the kind no. of thing that you know. I mean, he loves that sort of stuff. Like all those stories. That's what he lives for. Tarantino. He does. Um, and and they're great to see here, except for moments that do seem, you know, it it do, the, that moment does feel racist to me actually, you know. And the film, I think, is misogynist. You know. I really do. It's happy to sideline everyone who isn't a white guy, in a way, and make comments about them too. There's a comment about the Mexicans. Yeah, that's right. That Brad Pitt's character makes. Yes. And yeah, it's just a comment, and it's just a throwaway joke. But the fact is that it's there, and you feel it, and you feel what's the point of it. Well, nobody would accept, you know, those throwaway jokes if they were about Jews. You know. Maybe. I think it's very interesting. That he always makes those jokes about disenfranchised people, you know. They're always about Mexicans. They're always about blacks. 
You know, they're always about mm. gays, you know, whatever, well, yeah. you know. Uh, so, uh, um, yeah. You know, he's not making jokes about the Klu Klux Klan, is he? <laughs> It feels unpleasant. Right, it kind of rankled. And, and I think it's, it's not so much like exactly what the comment is, you know, because the comment about Mexicans is, don't cry in front of a Mexican. Yes. So he says when DiCaprio is all upset about his career ending at the start. And, you know, there's not a lot... I mean, you don't know what the basis of that is. It's just like, well, don't, don't look weak in front of the help, I yes. guess, is the idea. Yeah, that um, is the idea. But, um, but it's not so much like the, the exact content of that comment, but it's the way it sidelines the entire group of people, and then we just carry on. Yeah. You know, as the two cool white guys in the car. Actually, I, in a way, that's what <laughs> makes it worse, right? It's a throwaway joke. Exactly. You know, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if it were about, like, if the film kind of were about that sort of thing and interrogate it, it would be something yeah. else. You know, it's not and like actually, you can't ever do that in a film. That's a historical problem, I think, with Tarantino, that, you know, he feels he can say these things, and he's you know, because other people say them, and kind of, you know, not being conscious that, well, other people don't get the budgets that he gets to make the films that he does, you know, that circulate the way that his films does, do. Um, and, and the, you know, it has, everything is contextual, you know, and actually within his context, he can do better. And he needs to do better. I would have liked to have seen, on a similar line, more context behind the Manson family. It's, you know, it's what you're saying about everything in Tarantino films being superficial is absolutely true of the way the Manson family is treated here. Yes. You know, what they what they believed in, despite, you know, despite the fact that what they believed in was stupid, the idea that this race war was coming, mm. you know. Um, you know, it has it has the kind of, it has the signifiers of what they are. They were dumpster diving, they were living on the ranch, they it was just full of women, they were fucking the gold guy who ran the ranch. Um, and then they, you know, were told to go and commit these murders. Like, it, everything, that all those kind of bits that you know, the little details that you know there, but, like, actually, what they represented, the idea that Charles Manson was someone who wanted to be a star, he wanted to be a musician, he kept getting turned down, he was too weird for everyone, he wasn't quite good enough, he would fuck up every opportunity that he had, mm. combined with the insanity. <laughs> but also the hippie movement that, yeah. you know, meant people... Uh, you know, were urged to leave their understandings behind and to go for the new wherever it might. Yeah, like yeah. there was a sense of experimentation and so on. And the and the feeling which, of it as well being a kind of signal of the end of the sixties, like mm. the the sixties, kind of what we were saying in the Matrix about how how um, the nineties ended really suddenly when nine eleven happened. Mm. Like, I think it feels like the sixties ended just as suddenly, and this was a kind of symbol of it. The Manson murders. No, I'm not sure. You know, I, 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 I'm not sure I share that. They're like a perversion of what was everything that was supposed to be great about the hippie movements. I always feel right. well, certainly in America, you know, kind of. I think the '60s ended with Nixon, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or something, you know. Um, um, but you know, but but the, the point is, there's nothing like that in this. It's no. It's, it, it, the Manson family is there so that they can be beaten up at the end. But in a way, I think that's okay. A film can't be about everything, and actually, I think what this film really is about. Well, it's about Hollywood, right? And it's about stardom, and it's about acting. But it's also about the relationship between these two men. It is also about, mm. you know, uh, uh, a film about about a male friendship, really. I kind of, and I really loved it as that, actually. Yeah, so did I. Um, and, and the interplay between, well, actually, you know, Brad Pitt is, I, I think Leonardo DiCaprio is better. He's doing very complex things acting-wise. He really is acting in these different styles 
and in these different registers, right? Mm-hmm. You know, throughout the film, um, Brad Pitt is doing something simpler, right? But also, Brad Pitt achieves more effects. Like, you know, every little thing he does lands, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he's just kind of beautiful to see, actually. And actually, he is beautiful to see, you know, as well. Like, you know, kind of, um, he's still incredibly handsome, you know. But I think. I think now you can appreciate his skill as well, right? And you know, and his skill as a film actor, it is often like, you know, a line reading or a side sideways glance or something that lands a joke. He's very, very good. I think I think he can play anything. I really do. You know, he'll he'll play like he'll play an incredibly cool badass in one film, then the next he'll be some fucking idiot in a Cohen Brothers movie with silly hair, dancing to music in a car. Remember that bit? Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I, and then he can do this in here where. You know he's he's incredibly cool just to look at. Like he has that sort of he has that sort of James Dean sort of stance look. Actually, it was rather like um, in Benjamin Button when he got to sort of twenty nine years old in that film when he aged down to twenty nine. He like looked like the idea was he looked like fucking Marlon Brando, you know, on a bike, mm. you know, and that and like yeah, and he has a similar sort of look here. They allow him to have that really cool look when he's striding through the ranch. I'm thinking, you know, just not intimidated by anyone, totally in control, doesn't matter. And then you know he gets high at the end. He get he, he trips on a acid cigarette, Dipped cigarette, yes. and and then he just starts like looking at his hand, mm. and it's and that's and you know as a fucking idiot, he's fantastic too. Yeah, he gets all these great brilliant effects. Yes, he is very good, but I do think that DiCaprio is on a completely different level. The th- the thing about Brad Pitt is he can do natural, you know. But he can't do stylized. He can't do farce. Whereas actually, in this <laughs> film, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio is doing all of those things. Yeah. You know, so so I mean, I'm I'm not putting Brad Pitt down. I think he's phenomenal in this, right? But in terms of you know, uh, the acting required, DiCaprio has a much juicier role, and he and he he lives up to it. Yeah. You know? um, that was, I I loved all of that actually, and I loved. Um, that's a Hollywood film. I love stupid things like, you know, just seeing uh, the posters for Funny Girl on the Lot, you know, kind of the posters that he has, the way that like, you know, when he's pictured, his famous picture, he's pictured in Mad Magazine. Right? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, all of that stuff. I just love that. Actually, I do. I want to see it again. All those um, fake posters of, of the movies that he's been in, of mm, the Italian movies with yes. names like shoot the gringo ringo (laughs) (laughs) yes those italian spanish italian kind of spaghetti westerns uh i loved all of that actually and it's a kind of portrait of the ending of a certain kind of hollywood type hollywood masculinity you know like his what he represents that kind of burt reynolds thing as you're saying is ending at this point you know yes it's having to change at least hollywood is changing yes i mean this is the period where all of a sudden the leading men, the big Hollywood stars are Pacino, who's brilliant in this, Elliot Gould, Dustin Hoffman, right? Kind of people who are unimaginable as stars in 60s films. Except maybe Walter Matthau, really. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. So there's a new... But, but Walter Matthau's stardom is also in this period. It, you know, it's like from 66 onwards, right? Uh, so the end of the 60s is a period of change, really. Um, and actually, you know, Peter Fonda just died, so it's it's also worth mentioning that Easy Rider was 
a kind of a marker of those changes, really. It came out, I think, in 69, mm. you know, the year that this is set. It was a phenomenal kind of hit. Mm. Uh, it meant that studio heads were then banking on young people, really, who were their audience. Yeah, yeah so. and Peter Peter Fonda and and um, like Peter Fonda was kind of a dropout, wasn't he? Like he wasn't really considered good or reliable professional, and and um, Dennis Hopper was no, like I think a wild that, man. Yeah, I think Dennis Hopper was different. I think uh, um, yeah, I think well, Peter Fonda was like a star of B movies, really. Uh, for what was it, American, the the, the B film studio, really. Mm. Uh, what's his name? The producer, Corman. Cor- Corman. Roger Corman. Yeah, um, you know, and then he 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 must have been responsible because he directed and so on. You know, so sure. he had a career as a director subsequently, but certainly, um, you know, as a star, he didn't last for very long. Um, his career didn't uh, didn't last for very long. But this film, Easy Rider, did signal all mm. of the changes really. So um, it was kind of like a turning point. When was uh, Bonnie and Clyde? That's sixty-seven. Yeah, that's sixty-seven. But you know, Bonnie and Clyde had you know, Warren Beatty, really. Yeah. You know, uh, and Faye Dunaway. You know, though, though maybe the film helped make Faye Dunaway. Whereas you know, Warren Beatty was all already, you know, the young leading man of the period. Um, but you know, Easy Rider. Uh, it was also where Jack Nicholson got really noticed, right? He was nominated mm. for an Academy Award for that, right? He was another one who was in Corman films, wasn't he? He was in Corman films as well. But, you know, that... I mean, that year in 69, I think he was in... My God, my mind is going that... He had a tiny role in a Barbra Streisand film, a big musical directed by Vincente Manelli, which I now forget the name. Um... um you know, but that was like a tiny part. And then he got, you know, nominated for an Academy Award for what was meant to be this really low-budget independent film. So kind of, you know... And and from then on, he had hit after hit after hit, right? I mean, you know, I always associate kind of Nicholson with the 70s uh, because, you know, Five Easy Pieces and Chinatown and uh, um, uh, the, the film where he's... Uh, um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, it was kind of um, uh, yeah, hit after hit after hit. The film where he's a sailor on leave, uh, which I now forget the name. It's the uh, Streisand film you're thinking of on a clear day you yes, can see forever. That's right. 1970. Well, they were released the same season. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, no, I'm uh, just saying. Anyway. Where were we in relation to Once Upon a Time in the West well, we, in Hollywood? We were just talking about like the end of the sixties, the end of a kind of masculinity or a certain type. The end. Of, it's like you know, it's, it's like fucking Woody in Toy Story, like the first Toy Story. It's like you know, it, okay, it doesn't have the spaceman coming in, but it's like the threat of the end of mm. who I am and what I represent and what I am. You know, so like, so when when he's seen uh, uh, Rick, this is the DiCaprio character, when he has a shout at the Manson family when they're pulling up on his drive. You know, when they when they go out, they're like, "Wasn't that Rick Thingy who was in that TV show from years back?" And then they start reminiscing about, "Oh, that was yes. my favorite program." Yes, you know, <laughs> like in the fifties. You know, when when you could be a cowboy and that was cool, and that yes. was the biggest thing. But of course, you know, in the fifties, they would have been twenty, ten years old, or twelve years old, as opposed to now being twenty or twenty-two, or yeah. Mm. Um, but anyway, I want to bring something up because 
you know, the very title of the film brings up comparisons with Once Upon a Time in the West and Once Upon a Time in America. Yes. Where would you... By what's-his-name? By Sergio Leone. That's the one. I haven't seen Once Upon a Time in America. Um, I've seen Once Upon a Time in the West, which is fabulous. How would you compare this to... How can you compare them? They're not the... You know, you it's, it's in, but, I mean, you're right that it invites those comparisons. It really like, does. This, this film is supposed to be all-encompassing. This is a tale about... It's a fable about this, I mean, this world. But oof. I think I think Once Upon a Time in America is a masterpiece, you know, and I think there are some shots in that where you just go, like, wow, right? And also, it's very beautiful, and it's very touching, and it's very violent, you know, and I just think this doesn't compare. Like, I loved it, but it doesn't compare. But, I mean, how, like, apart from the titles, where do you think the comparison is, you know? Well, the comparison is that each of those films is trying to tell you something about a structure of feeling, yeah, not so much an era, you know, maybe an era mediatized or something, right? But it is set in particular epochs, right? Like Once Upon a Time in the West, Once Upon a Time in America is about immigrants kind of, you know, coming to New York. I think it's set in the 20s, 30s, you know, and um, it's about gangsters, you know, it's, it's kind of about Jewish gangsters, it's about the immigrant experience, right? It's, it's really incredibly beautiful. Kind of, and I, I think it's you know one of the great films. Like I only caught it on television. Actually, I wasn't able to see it when it came out. You know, which was maybe the seventies. I forget when it is. But anyway, I saw it on television, and it was like at midnight. I could just, I just could not stop watching. I was like completely riveted, really. You know, and just gobsmacked by kind of some of the some of the shots, some of the imagery. It was so. Nineteen eighty four. Nineteen eighty four. Yeah, later than oh. thought. Yeah, once upon a time, the West was sixty eight. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm not surprised actually that was one 1984 I did think it was like late mm. 70s early 80s something like that 3 so, hours and 49 minutes yes I think the version that was released you know uh, and it got very bad reviews and I think it, it was balderized and anyway I just didn't I just didn't go see it for whatever reason you know uh, maybe because of all of that um, but I did catch it on television recently the restored version and it was amazing um And I just think this film is not on that level. Leone originally envisaged two three-hour films, then a single four-hour and 29-minute film, but was convinced by distributors to shorten it to three hours and 49 minutes. The American distributors, The Lad Company, further shortened it to 139 minutes, which is, what, two hours and 19 minutes. Yeah, which is, like, cut it in half, basically. Yeah, that's... that's and rearranged the scenes into chronological order without Leone's inv- involvement. The shortened version was a critical and commercial flop in the US, and critics who had seen both versions harshly condemned the changes. The original European cut, quote-unquote, has remained a critical favourite, and so on so mm. and so forth. I haven't seen it, I must. Yeah, but, you must. Um, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Um, I hope I'm not romanticising, but I did <laughs> see it not long ago. I mean, maybe like three or four years ago, or maybe even five. But anyway, every time it comes on... I always watch it. You know, it really is entrancing. Just kind of, just the shots, the composition of the shots, the way it looks, right? Like, mm. you know, you watch a few minutes and you want to kind of, you know. Do you think if this comes on, you'll watch it? Oh, I definitely will. Yeah. I mean, I actually, I think it's great, you know, and it's great fun. And, 
you know, it's much, much better than expected. I mean, as I said at the beginning, I am not a Tarantino fan. fan. And this is, I think, one of his very best works. And, and, I th and as I said, I think partly it's because it's not only a love letter to Hollywood, which it is, you know, and it's a love letter to his childhood, really, to his appreciation of that pop culture of the era. But I also do think that it's material that he's familiar with and that he knows about and that he has feelings for. And I think that all of that is transmitted. Yeah. Right. And I think it works especially well with somebody like me who I'm, you know, I'm, on, I'm a year older than he is. And I grew up with the same kind of pop culture. I really got the feeling and this thought popped into my head while I was watching it that it's like when you have a teacher who is really, really interested in the subject that they teach mm. and and that their enthusiasm for it and knowledge about it gets transmitted yes. to you, you know, and uh, makes you as excited as they are. I uh, felt this has that, that feeling. Yeah, I felt that, you know, when the characters are showing an appreciation of shots. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. you know, kind of, yeah, it's kind of, wow, it's, it's good, you know, I kind of, yeah. Yeah, you, but it's like, it's that it's, kind of, it's, it's a, but it has that behind the scenes thing of, you know, getting ready for the, for the, for the scene and in makeup, blah blah, all the rest of it, the filmmaking stuff. But then it really indulges in the playing of it. Yes, you know. and also what not very good actors suffer through <laughs> in order to give you that performance, right? Like, you know, I thought those scenes with uh, uh, DiCaprio berating himself, you know, for having drank the night before and ruining his performance, and yeah. you know, it's kind of it's like so sweet and endearing and charming, right? Because, you know, then he really is just quite a bad TV actor with all of those mannerisms, you know. I thought he was good. You know, when the little girl said <laughs> that was the best acting I've ever seen, I agreed with her. <laughs> I thought it was great. I, th I mean, honestly, like it, it is obviously a pastiche of that bad acting, but I suppose it's within a context that you know that's what he's doing. Yes. But then, like, so then I suppose I'm going... But he does it so well. Oh yeah, he, yeah, he does the bad acting so well. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> you know what I mean? DiCaprio. Like how Hugh Grant has like made a little cottage industry of playing failed stars now. Yes. You know, and he's wonderful at it, and he and he really endears you to it. Yes. Similar sort of thing in this. He does yes. the bad stuff really beautifully. Again, I think the is in a class of his own. I really do. I mean, I thought he was like such a fantastic Gatsby, you know, um, and I mean. He's one of those extraordinary stars, of which actually you know very little about, really, you know. Um, but, I mean, I think it's, what, it's almost over a decade since he's been in hit after hit after hit after hit. DiCaprio. Yeah, like huge hits, right? I mean, I think the last film that I remember where it wasn't a, a big hit was Blood Diamonds, you know. Mm. Um, I, like, I like Blood Diamonds. Read his filmography since either Romeo or Juliet or Titanic, right? They were both huge successes. One, a landmark sociological, you know, phenomenon. But actually, his Romeo and Juliet did over 100 million when at the time that was considered a blockbuster success. So, you know, what has he done since those? Since Romeo and Juliet and Titanic. Yeah. Which were 96 and 97. He did The Man in the Iron Mask, Celebrity. Okay, Man in the Iron Mask, hit. Celebrity was a Woody Allen film. He's fabulous in that. Um, was The Man in the Iron Mask a hit? Yes, it was. It certainly was. Um, the Beach. That was a hit, though not very well received. Catch Me If You Can, which is Blockbuster great. hit. That did over 100 million. You still haven't seen it, have you? 
Well, yeah, I, I so good, man. Okay, well, I'll give it another go. But if you I've like, tried. if you if you like, Dear Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, it's got similar things going on. It's got that playfulness. It's got okay. that evocation of an era. Keep going. You know, wonderful. So, so so far, all hits. <laughs> Gangs of New York. Oh, that was a hit. Yes. The uh, Aviator. Yes. The Departed. Yes. Blood Diamond. Okay, so you see, the other three all did over a hundred million. And then I, I think Blood Diamond maybe didn't. It was certainly less of a success than the others. Uh, I'll double check for you. Blood Diamond cost a hundred million, made a hundred seventy-one. Yeah. So. I'd sold on the basis of him. Right? Sure. So you know, the eleventh hour. Oh, that. Was oh, a, that, that I was don't a, know. That's a documentary he ah. co-wrote and narrated. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Body of Lies, Ridley Scott. Uh, that might have been a flop. Actually, I don't remember that at all. I'll check. Mm. Made 118 million on a 70 million budget. Not mm, really. So didn't make his money back. Revolutionary Road. That's the one where they uh, he did it with Kate Winslet again. Well, that got good reviews, and you know, the, it made I think twice he, its budget. He was nominated for an Oscar, so was he? I know Michael Shannon was for like. Oh, maybe minutes. maybe Michael Shannon and Hall- uh, Kate Winslet were, and he wasn't. Um, um, no, just Michael Shannon. Also, art direction and costume design. But oh, right, okay. um, no, only Michael Shannon for acting. Uh, that was the one where people said, "I haven't seen it." But this is the one where people said, um, "If they'd survived <laughs> at the end of Titanic, this would be their life now. <laughs> they would be this fucking boring." Uh-huh. Shutter he's, Island. He's wonderful. Shutter Island hit uh, and and brilliant. I think it's quite good. I've got problems with it. Yeah, huge hit. Three hundred million dollars. Um, now the problem I have with it, right? This is a spoiler for Shutter Island if you haven't seen it, but he, he plays this bloke called Teddy Daniels, right? And he's this cop investigating this mental asylum on Island. It turns out that he's uh, actually a patient there, and like he, he, they help, they allow him to make up this scenario about himself. And you've got Ben Kingsley at the end, who he's like he runs the place. He gets his fucking chalkboard out and he says, you see, your real name is Andrew Ladis. And Teddy Daniels is an anagram of Andrew Ladis. And he has it on a, bo- on a chalkboard. And like, that's the wrong way around, right? You don't, you, don't, you don't have a name like Andrew Ladis that just happens to make an anagram of Teddy Daniels that you can use in your fantasy. You have the name Teddy Daniels and then you have to make up a shit name like Andrew Ladis to make the thing work. It's fucked up. I have a Go huge on. problem with that. What came after that? Hubble, he narrated. Inception. Beyond Massive Hit. Yeah. 2010. J. Edgar. Um, I don't that, know if that was, that was not hit, a big hit. But it was Oscar nominated and all the rest. It was, yeah. a, it was a Clint Eastwood, very respectable, shallow focus film. Yes. <laughs> Made twice its budget, more than. Um, Django. Big hit. Great Gatsby. Big hit. Wolf of Wall Street. Big hit. Uh... The Revenant. Uh, he got an Oscar. Big hit, big hit. Yeah, it was. He got an Oscar because he got raped and it was, by a bear. It was a big hit. Uh, so you see, and, and then did since then once upon a time in Hollywood. So you see, there there isn't a star of his age who's got anywhere near that track record. Really, it is blockbuster hit after blockbuster hit, not in um, franchises. That's the other thing, you know. Yeah, no, he hasn't been subsumed by the MCU behemoth yet or the Fast and the Furious or you know, imagine he hasn't though <laughs> I don't know imagine though 
Well, I would love to see him do like an action film like that. Actually, I would. Did you read the article I sent you about how how Jason Statham and um, uh, The Rock are just absolute pansies, and how they have to make sure that they get the same number of hits in on each other in the yes, fights? Yes, yes, yes. Like when one of them gets I, thrown I through a glass that. window, the other has to get through, thrown through a glass window five seconds later. I did all, read that. And this what I, what I was saying about those being producers' films, mm. like, oh, I'm so protective of my image. Well, yeah. I did read that, and I found it fascinating because, you know. Um, uh, uh, the Rock is the bigger star. Dwayne Johnson is the bigger star, you know. But I do think that um, Statham is like the preeminent action star of the last decade, really. Um, and and yet, and and I think that's signified or that's proven by the fact that they both had equal say in how many times each would be punched, <laughs> you know, and how that might affect their image, right? So, though Dwayne Johnson got more money because he's also in comedies and he is the bigger international star, but, you know, kind of Jason Statham's star power is such that he could demand um, uh, 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 things being equal. Interesting, He's also a huge star in this particular series. Mm. Like, it's not like he's a second fiddle in that respect. He is, this is kind of... I think as much his series is the rock. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah. Um, but it's uh, something interesting because we we had this conversation the other day about about Statham being the biggest uh, British star and being very working class compared to yeah, everyone yeah. else notable, which is, you know you're bringing up. Uh, one of our listeners, Ben, on Twitter, really interestingly brought up Liam Neeson, who's Northern yes, Irish, exactly. Who's obviously, who's massive. also yeah, um, an action star. Who's also an action star and and is obviously massive, but he's from Northern Ireland, and I think it points out something that I didn't pick up on when we were having that conversation, which is that there's there's a there's a lot of assumed Englishness in what we were talking about, yes. you know, because because what what happened was you were comparing Statham in particular to the kind of Eton set of actors, yeah, who are very privileged, very privileged upbringings, yeah. went to private schools, went to Eton, went to good universities and all the rest, and. And, and who, are the, who are the dominant group of British stars of, a, of exactly. this generation? And in comparing them to Statham, I think there's a, there's an awful lot of assumed Englishness in that. Yeah. Like they, I think they both represent different kinds of Englishness, yes. not just Britishness. Which no, is no. why I think Liam Neeson didn't come to mind. Yes, it's because true. he's so massive, but he's not English. Yes, and that's true. something else. It's true. It's true. It's true. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Anyway, anyway, let's go back to Once Upon a Time in the Hollywood yeah. and. Maybe wrap it up. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I swear, I it's, it's int- I, I'll always I always look forward to a new Tarantino film because I think they just always excite me at the cinema, uh-huh. you know. And um, and this didn't let me down, despite the fact that there are these there are these niggles about how does it represent people, what does it assume, you know, mm. and and what happens with that ending, the, the, that that really wonky to me sort of final shot where you go. Oh, this was real though. Like, how how fantasy can we make this? It's not the same when it's Nazis, mm. you know. I had a similar thing when I when I when I wrote about um, uh, Twelve Years a Slave. Mm. On my, it was the first blog I ever did, um, and I wrote about how like that kind of that film seemed to provide a grounding of 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 realism or seriousness for a depiction of slavery that wasn't that was missing, and that actually would have benefited Django Unchained because Django Unchained was like the fun version of slavery like yeah. the what can you know what if what if we get our own back version of slavery rather like Inglorious Bastards is the what if we get our own back version of um the Nazi story you know um but the thing is the Nazis are just everywhere in media you you understand all their symbols you understand what they're supposed to represent and everything like if like it seemed like Django was kind of 
being made in a world which that needed to be there for slavery somehow. But you described slavery as the kind of structuring absence of American cinema. Like something yes. it didn't want to deal with ever. Well, other I think, than through these basic symbols. I think that's I think that's um, true. But by structuring it means it's also everywhere in American cinema, but you know, in ways that are unspoken. Yeah. Yeah. Um Anyway, I can't remember. I just went off on one there, but the, but you know, the point is, I really like this, despite. <laughs> well, I to be, I think this is the the film of his. I think it's his best film since Pulp Fiction, and the one that I've enjoyed the most uh, since Reservoir Dogs. You know, because I had more fun at this than at Pulp Fiction as well. So um, I highly recommend. I think it's a massive amount of fun. I think I still think Tarantino's best film is Jackie Brown. Ah, oh, well, you're right. Actually, you know, we were talking in the in the restaurant before. Uh, oh. I I think that Jackie Brown is one of the great films of the '90s. Mm. I just can't get past that. It's, I, I, well, I think you know, Pulp Fiction is. Um, it's it's interesting. I don't know. I can't really comment because I don't think I've seen Jackie Brown uh, since it came out. You know, and, and I remember liking it very much. Mm. Um, but, I mean, again, you know, the opposite of, you know, the Leones, both of them, in fact, but particularly Once Upon a Time in America, where, you know, I'm just drawn to see it, right? Mm. It's just kind of, you know, if it's on, or even, you know, I, I think it's been on Netflix or something like that. I just, you know, it's almost like I have to see it. I don't feel that way about Jackie Brown. Like, I haven't had any curiosity to see it since it came out. Well, you should have some because it's really good. <laughs> it is. You know. Uh, 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 all it's, right. It's funny because it's funny just because the other thing I was saying to you before in the restaurant was that I think that um, Tarantino is the only person who gives Samuel Jackson real roles these days. You know, I think everyone else makes him play Sam Jackson or just wants him to play Sam Jackson, the 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 cool you know guy that you kind of the stereotype of Sam Jackson you expect. Um, whereas you know, like Stephen in uh, Django and Chain, you should have got the best supporting actor Oscar for. Like, mm. You know, it's such a wonderful performance, a wonderful role. But in Jackie Brown, that is like peak cool guy Samuel L. Jackson. Yes. You know, that's where it almost seemed to start. Almost that and Pulp Fiction. Yes. You know, but then Tantian's the only one who actually gave him something else to do since. Yes. Though you know, I think blame Samuel L. Jackson for that. I mean, he's a big star. <laughs> he's got a lot of choice. He's he's picking these films. Yeah, maybe the case. Uh, so you know. Um, well, anyway, yeah, um, fun, fun movie. Yeah, didn't feel like two and a half hours. No, it didn't at all. Actually, it flew. I thought, you know, I thought. So as I was experiencing the film, you know, because I'd been told it was so long, I actually expected another hour. So I thought, okay, we've now seen the ending of the not Sharon Tate. Manson murder, <laughs> and then there'll be another hour about. Yeah. I was expecting more after that. I didn't expect yeah. the film to end there, and then when it goes into that crane shot, you go, "Oh, this feels like an ending now." Yeah, 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 yeah. But actually, that's a compliment to the film, you know, because yeah. it meant that for me anyway, the two hours, whatever it is, flew by. Yeah, I was, I was ready for more. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Uh, on social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter at Eavesdrop Movies. And if you, um, you know, if you write us a comment, write us a tweet with a correction or anything we've said, then we'll read it out, like I did just now. Yes. And um, the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Yeah. Thank you very much. Bye bye. It's the day after. We've just seen animals. I've seen Lion King. Ugh. 
Um, but, but, <laughs> I was in Lion King. Yeah. <laughs> but the um, but on you know online on Facebook on Twitter and things, the conversation about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has been going on, and it's been on my mind all night. You know, okay. and, all, and then all day. So tell us what's been and, on your mind. Well, something that was pointed out by Lee, mm. who's been on the podcast before, mm. is how the film seems to directly um, have a direct relationship or directly respond to the Me Too movement over the last mm-hmm. few years, um, which didn't really occur to me at the time. I noticed kind of certain things, and we talked a little bit about his sexual politics mm. and sexual representations. Yes, we talked but, about how it's a sexist film, but we didn't talk about it in relation to it as a, as a response to Me Too. Nor did we talk about it in much detail. Mm. Um, so we, we kind of talked about the, the, the female characters being very subsidiary, uh, being kind of responses or, or kind of feeding into the male characters or, or just kind of comic relief in the case of, for instance, the Italian wife. Right. Um, or how they were beaten up at the bar and how yeah. that was perceived as funny. Right. Um, how, yeah. And how that could be seen as equal opportunity. But one thing, yeah, which you <laughs> loved, one thing though to consider is that this is Tarantino's first post-Weinstein film. Yes. Weinstein was obviously right at the centre of Me Too, kind of yes. um, really kicked, kicked it off in a way. And, <laughs> and really, the company was almost like built around Tarantino in many respects, yeah? Yeah. I mean, he was their most successful director and the one who was most um, allied to them. It was the house that Quentin built. Yes. Because I think it was put in Peter Biskin's book. Okay. Um, and there are one or two moments that then you know kind of come to mind. So the one that probably comes to mind most readily is where Brad Pitt picks up the hitchhiker, uh, uh, princess or whatever her name is, the, one of the Manson girls, mm. who we've seen a couple of times before. Eventually they're going the right direction, he picks her up. And she offers to suck his cock while he's driving her to the spawn ranch. Mm. And he asks for IDs. How old are you? Mm. You know, um, Clearly yeah. you're not old enough. No, no, I need to see some ID. And it's it's played as a kind of light-hearted thing. Um, yes, he's clearly attracted to her. She's doing all the coming on to him. You know, and then, you know, there's this thing of ID. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah and, and, it, and, it's, and it's very cleverly done because he said, you know, I've only been in jail once or, you know, but they've never got me or, or they've never got me or something like that. You know, if I ever I, go back, if they ever catch me again, it's not going to be because of because Poontang. Of, yeah. Basically, I think he says Boontang. Um, I don't remember the exact language. Yeah. But, uh, but I mean, thing, but it's, it's, what, also, what is also interesting is that he doesn't at all... Uh, it, it's not about the morality of having sex with a minor. It's about getting caught. I'm not getting caught for it. That's, well... That's why, that's why he laughs it off, you know? I don't know. I mean, I do think there is something about the law and the breaking of the law and the repercussions of the law... Right, you know, so and it also has to do, I think, a bit with this thing, you know, that kind of people are not exactly recognizable, you know, age wise, right? Like, I mean, you don't know, kind of, you know, well, you do know what age I am because I've told you many times, but you know, kind of, you look at people and they might be 25, they might be 28 or whatever, right? Like, you know, sometimes you look at somebody who's 18 and they might be 23 and they might be like 15 yeah. or so. yeah you don't you don't know it's a very enlightened um, perspective though for 1969 yes yeah <laughs> it is it's a 2019 I, perspective I, yes i i would though mind you i think even if you read on the period 
sleeping with underage people is always seen as wrong, as a kind of, you know, a dark fetish or something. You know, it's, it's never been seen as right. No, I suppose not, but it, it, it's the kind of thing that's always been kept as open secrets. That sort well, of not so. I mean, it's often been highly publicized. For well, example, Bill you know, Chaplin, right, like was very much into underage girls. Uh, so, but it's always been seen as a stain on character, as a bad thing to do. Mm. It's one of those things that um, <clears throat> I remember when when Orson Welles was on Parkinson. He talked about. I think he talked about reading some someone's book on Hollywood and how after reading this book years later, because this was in the nineteen seventies, um, you know, he, he he looked back on Hollywood and realized that that town. He's, the quote is something along the lines of that town has hurt people and it is bad. Well, it is, but, you know, I mean, I think it's so interesting as well, right, like, that whole thing, because, I mean, there was a period where I was very interested in writing about novels about Hollywood, right, because there was a whole strand of novels in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that dealt about making it, and often when they start about with you, when they were about men, they were about starting in the mailroom and being so completely ruthless that you made it to the top, right? And the female equivalent of ruthlessness was actually kind of sleeping their way to the top and being like really Machiavellian about, you know, who they slept with and why, right? Mm. So, you know, this idea, yeah, I mean, so much of Hollywood is about power and desire and being desirable, right? That it's kind of like, in a way, a toxic cocktail. I mean, I think in a way, you know, these... Um, the rules that are followed in Hollywood in relation to these matters are so completely different than the ones that, um, you know, apply everywhere else in a way, right? Because, you know, once desirability is such a commodity in a place where, you know, an actor or is themselves, are themselves, is themselves, <laughs> Uh, our, our, our commodity, yeah, yeah, kind of, you know. So, and mind you, it's always it's always gendered and it's always sexist. So, you know, a man sleeping their way to the top is kind of seen as being smart. You know, um, a woman sleeping their way to the top is seen as being sluttish. Mm. You know, but um, you never get narratives of sleeping their way to the top in Iowa. <laughs> 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 well, I'm sure there the, are the best but, uh, yeah. the other scene that, that really came to mind for me uh, which I'd completely forgotten about really well there's this whole thing about Brad Pitt's character like one of the central things about his character is this scuttlebutt that he killed his wife and got away with it Yes, and you are shown that up to a point in a flashback um, what you're showing is on a on a boat with his wife. His wa- his wife is portrayed basically as a screen. True. I mean, Weinstein. Uh, Weinstein. Um, Tarantino's kind of kind of idea of marriage in this film is not a positive one because Brad Pitt's marriage is well. You've got, I suppose, to be fair, you've got Sharon Tate and Polanski's marriage, which you don't see very much of, but it's clearly very happy. Um, but Brad Pitt's marriage to his wife is. For the short time you see it, it's portrayed as him putting up with a shrieking harpy yes. who's going on at him, and the way that the that the accident or the way that the, the way that the her death is nearly portrayed because it cuts before it is that uh, on this boat he's got a, a it must be like a harpoon gun something along their yes. lines, um, and she's screeching away lying down on a deck chair. He takes a seat and she kind of stands up in front of him and it's just sort of sitting on his lap. 
And the reading I took from that is that you know it was meant to be a joke then that the camera cuts and you know that he killed her because she was being annoying. It's to me, I read that as a joke intentionally. I think though it's also possible to read it as maybe it's leaving room for the death having been an accident. I well, I I kind of read it as both. Yeah. Yeah. That the film makes a joke of what was an accident. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. I, I definitely read it as if it, if it was a joke, it would mean that it had to be deliberate because the joke would be that he would kill her for being that annoying and he would kill her so casually. That's how he sits down. No, I mean, you could also have the joke of it being an accident, you know. Possibly. Um, possibly. Um, and then the other side of, of, of marriage that the film shows is um, the marriage to the Italian wife that yes. DiCaprio's character picks up at the end who, for the very short time you see her, she's basically someone who is responsible annoying. for bringing a lot of baggage. I mean, literally all the shopping and stuff mm. and all that stuff. And then, yeah, kind of immediately being someone who is he's just responsible for, mm. you know? I rather mean, than he does, she, I mean, she certainly doesn't seem to be an equal in that relationship. No, no, no. I mean, the film is, uh, in every way, about men, and women are on the margins of the whole action. There's no question about it. However, that said, I actually don't have a problem with that. Mm. You know, I, I mean, I, also, I always think that um, the problem is often displaced. I mean, I think that the real problem is women are not being allowed to make movies. You know, and I think kind of women should make half of the movies that we see, right? And those movies, yeah, should be supported. It would, it would teach us all to look differently, right? I mean, you know, I personally don't blame... Tarantino for making boys films which is what he makes yeah yeah you know? oh for sure uh, so so it's true that it has that offhanded the fil- his films have that offhanded sexism uh, and they also have that offhanded racism actually you know and I think that um, you know there are two faults about the film because I think even a man who makes boys films deal with these situations differently so you know I don't want to excuse him for that um, but on the other hand I think you know the film I think I think the films also have a kind of um, a freshness and uh, um, a precision yeah they're acute about the perspective that they are representing you know, which I value. And I think you can't do that without being free to do that. Yeah. Mm, uh, sure, yeah. You know, and the and the price of that is that you're often very crude or tone deaf about other things perhaps, you know. Mm. Or maybe, you know, to be you could argue it differently, I suppose, and you could say, Well, these are his limitations as an artist, you know, that he does these things well, but actually he can't you know, he'll never be a great artist because he can't see uh, perspectives other than his own. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that would also be an argument one could make. Yeah. He certainly doesn't seem to, to be able to. Yeah. Yeah, but he hasn't you get, you so get, far. You get a kind of singular vision for all these films of kind of what life could be. Maybe with the exception of Jackie Brown, which I always come back to as the one exception. Well, actually, the thing is that I think this is his most personal film. Yeah, I think I'm thinking, yeah. Um, you know, and to me, I think it's his best film because it's his most personal film. So... I mean, I don't um, disagree that there are that there are problems and there are limitations, right? And maybe 
you know, I think it is a limitation for an artist not to be able to understand, you know, perspectives other than his own. Yeah, to not be, to not have the imagination to see how other people can hurt mm. or what other people's experiences might be. So, you know, I think those might be his limitations as an artist. But I do think that this one, even with the sexism and the racism, it's his most personal film. It's the one that he knows most about, you know, and that he knows most thoroughly, and that he dramatizes and visualizes, you know, with kind of great acuity. The other thing that's been on my mind sort of all day is... Um Things that I kind of described as niggles yesterday, mm. the, the you know the, the, the kind of issues of representation and 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 how the film you described it as um, you described it as not questioning white privilege or something along yes. those lines. Yeah, it's kind of uh, we kind of agreed that it it doesn't have a, a problem not questioning yes. these people's place and that sort of thing. But the more I think about it, the the more that becomes actually exacerbated in my head, and it's and it's not just. That he doesn't have a problem with that, but actually, I think it's deeply conservative, actually, and f- afraid of change. It depicts a time in Hollywood when things were changing, and yeah, it, it doesn't like it, and it's very protective of of what it thinks was lost. I mean, I, I suppose in a sense that's kind of what nostalgia is. You hear you hear similar things coming out of Brexit voters' mouths all the time about going back to the way things were and that sort of thing. I think it, it in a sense that's shared here. With with what Tarantino clearly really values these these kind of archetypes these pe- the, the, of the you know the DiCaprio type in particular ending up you know he gives him a happy ending he gives him a way back into Hollywood at the end yeah you know, and the thing is like the, the DiCaprio's character hates hippies and everything that hippies kind of represent is devalued. But I think largely because actually they're only represented by the Manson hippies. Who, well, that's right. You know, I mean, that is also... Like a reasonable hippie does not really show up in the film. No, or a political hippie or, you know, a hippie with a critique of society or a hippie as, you know, as as a metaphor for another way of leading, you know, a good life, right? Or a hippie as an environmentalist or a hippie as like a health nut, right? Like... You know, hippies yeah. kind of conveyed all all kinds of, you know, very positive ideas of social change, right? So, um, but no, he's not interested in that. Um, and actually, I also, I don't want to go on about it because I've always been a great defender of popular culture, right? Yeah, and I've argued that, you know, popular culture can be just as great as high culture in, you know, in all kinds of ways um, and in its own way, Right. But I think there is a difference between valor, you know, it's a, it's a thing about discrimination and distinctions, which I think are important, right? Because I think it's one thing to value popular culture, and it's another thing to just value popular culture because it's popular, right? Or because it's trash. I mean, the thing about Tarantino is, you know, he's a great lover of trash, mm. you know? I mean, kind of all the posters that dot his films... You know, none of them are like any of the great masterpieces of the cinema. And he's not even interested in arguing that they are, that they are neglected great masterpieces of the cinema. Yeah. He just loves his trashiness, right? Yeah. You know, and, and actually I think that there is something dulling about just <laughs> loving trash for itself. 
Yeah, that actually it even, means even knowing it's trash. Well, there was this idea in the 1950s about self-cultivation, right, and taste. That actually what you read had an effect on you, right, and that you cultivated your taste. You made you developed it. You made it richer. You led yourself from reading reading Harold Robbins to reading Dostoevsky, <laughs> right, and that Dostoevsky was a goal because you know. His language, his analysis, his view of people and society were so much richer and more complex than Harold Robbins, right? Mm. Right. But but I think you know that in many ways Tarantino has always remained in the Harold Robbins realm of trash movies. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I think that also it does dampen one's analysis, one's sensibility, one's sensitivity to things. Yeah. Which might also help for to account for particular perspectives in this film and the other thing to, to that I kind of think about the Manson the way the Manson family is is handled in the film which I think I kind of said the first time but it's I think right more forcefully is that um, you would think that this film being a kind of a story about Hollywood in the 1960s about these types about things changing all the rest of it and, and concentrating on this story that is so central to Hollywood mythology um, you would think that it would actually be interested in 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 who Manson was and what he thought and what he stood for because he was someone who wanted he didn't want to be in Hollywood exactly but he wanted to be a musician you know he ended up writing basically a, a Beach Boys song he got in with the Beach Boys got in with was it Donald Wilson the brother um, he ended up kind of getting in with them at, with him at least and there's there's this whole thing about him searching for stardom his ambition and he's wanting to be in with the crowd and all that sort of thing. It basically, you would, you would imagine that this is absolutely perfect, kind of thematically, for the film to talk about. And the fact that the film has absolutely no interest in any of that and just wants to use Manson, the Manson family, for the iconography, the, the, the imagery, the idea of the murders, mm. is thoroughly disappointing, actually. I didn't find it so. Um... I mean, I, you know, I, I didn't find it. So, I mean, there are many things to explore in the Manson murder. One is the question of class, because I think part of the argument, or you know, it could just be my understanding, but my idea is that he went, he went to the murder, or there's certainly gossip about him having gone to Cielo Drive because he thought it was um, Melcher and... And Candice Bergen. Yeah, no, the, right? he thought he thought Terry Melch were there, who was a producer, who was a record producer, who was the son of Doris Day, right? And at the time, he was living in Cielo Drive with Candice Bergen, you know, who was also the daughter of one of the top radio shows of the nineteen forties. So there are two children who are not only celebrated and powerful themselves, but who are also the sons and daughters of Hollywood royalty. Mm. So I think there's, you know. One could explore a class dimension to that story, you know, as well. Yeah. There, I mean, you know, one has to uh, draw the line at saying the film should have been this, the film should have been that, the film should have been, you know, because the film actually could have been many things. But what you have to deal with is what what the film is. <laughs> and I think it really works. I appreciate that. But uh -huh. it does it does feel like such an obvious place for it to have gone and it feels questionable that it didn't well why, I don't know why wasn't it interesting in Be well because the film has a whole other narrative on stardom on celebrity on television 
on the movies, on aging, on success. I mean, I think it's very rich. I think it's a very rich film. Mm. Yeah, I don't think that. I don't think I don't think I'll be happy with that though. To be honest, it seems it it seems so fucking obvious and right there for it. And you know, it's the, it's the fact that it's there. The Manson thing is there, but only for it's infamous. It's a spur to something else. Not even a spur. It's, it's not just... about the Manson murder. The film is not about the Manson murder. No, I know, but that's kind of what I'm saying. Like, but why, why does it want to be about the Manson? Because murder? I just explained why. It... Because it's it's so clearly involved. It's like that is what his story was. No, I don't think that's what his story is. The story is about the friendship between two men. That's the story. One who's, you know, a former TV star on the rocks and the other one who was a stuntman on the rocks, right? And actually, there's something there which is very interesting because, you know, one is dependent, right? But they're both kind of equal. So, and they're both living in this, you know, Hollywood, you know, in the late 60s, in which their own heyday was, you know, in 1950s television. That's what the story's about. Yeah, no, I didn't mean that. I meant, I meant what Manson's story is about. Yeah, but you know? this is not Manson's story. It's no, not, no it's not but, uh, but the point Manson. is, if you're putting him in the film, if you're putting him well, and his people in the film... Well, but why can't you put him in the film? No, I didn't say you can't. I'm saying, why wasn't it... Why would, wasn't it interested in him? That's my point. Because it's interested in the Leonardo DiCaprio character and his relationship... Well, I've, I've, I've made my point now, so, you know... Well, you've made your point, but actually, I think... I think that's the point that people, not just you... But other people have wanted because they've heard that it's about Manson and it's not. You know, then they complain that it's not about Manson. But it's and not about Manson. At no point did I think it was a Manson movie. I always knew it was that was a side aspect to it. But the fact that then what the film is actually about seems to match so perfectly with elements of the Manson story, and you're going to have him in there, or have his, you know, have his story. He's on in the there. background. You see him for two minutes. Why? But but the fact uh, that you don't draw any thematic link, the fact you don't draw anything out of that, that's ridiculous to me. Well, it's it's not to me. I mean, um, you know, I think basically uh, Tarantino wanted to make a film about this period in Hollywood history, in which actually television is very important and it's changing. And television is everyone's life, right? And kind of, you know, and the importance of movies is shifting. And he's wanting to deal with, like, B-movie culture and, and celebrity culture and, you know, the way that television kind of fits into that, um, you know, in a kind of a changing world. And really the Manson thing is just a kind of a little spur to a, a minor plot point, really. So, you know, why everyone is insisting on wrapping this in the Manson murders is... Well, I've made my point. I don't, I don't think that's quite what I'm saying, but... But I've said what I think. All right. What about you? Anything that's, that's, that's been on your mind? Anything that's come up with you? I just want to see it again, you know, no, because... I still fancy I think, um, you know, we've talked about it quite a lot, and I don't think we've exhausted talking about it. Um... And really, I think it's it's a credit to the film that, you know, so one of the things I was telling you the, maybe today or today was, <clears throat> you know, that I was so wrapped up in the story 
that I really wasn't paying attention to the shots, you know, and the compositions and, you know, kind of, yeah, how the shots were lined up and how they interconnected with each other and, you know, the editing and kind of, you know, so how a film is put together, which normally is a great interest of mine, is one of the things I noticed immediately. And actually, I was so wrapped up and time flew by so quickly for me that I just didn't pay attention to that. And I would like kind of, you know, to go back to it and kind of, you know, and explore those kind of more um, in detail. One thing that I noticed that came to mind, which was which was interesting, is how um, you get all these things where the actors have been edited into things, particularly, actually, mainly Leonardo DiCaprio. I think it's mm. only Leonardo DiCaprio. He's edited into various things. Mm. And then you also get these the kind of... escape and the FBI story and so on, yeah. And you also get these kind of pastiches and things, or like fake episodes of things that he, that he had done. But um, when Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, goes to see her film yes. in the theatre, that's not edited. The Sharon Tate in the film is Sharon Tate. Yes. And the Sharon Tate watching it is Margot Robbie. Yes. And, you know, and that's interesting because, I mean, it has that bit where she's remembering doing her training with Bruce Lee yes. for the karate scene. And so you see the clip of the film cuts to a clip of Margot Robbie training with Bruce Lee and back and forth, back and forth. And it's very clear they're not the same person. There's no attempt here to, to kind of fit her in. Or anything. There's like a respect for that one film, I guess, because it's not something that they're trying to fit a fake character into. She's playing a real person, as opposed to DiCaprio, mm. who isn't. Which I think uh, kind of there was a it was a detail that that I noticed. That I kind of like. Well, I think yeah, I think I think you're right that it's significant that the DiCaprio character is inserted into all of this, and one of them is a dream sequence, right? It's what he would have been like in The Great Escape. Yeah. Um, whereas the Margot Robbie character isn't, um, and that could just be, you know, because um, the the Margot Robbie character is a supporting character. The film is about, yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, the characters mm. they play, uh, and Margot Robbie is just a catalyst. Yeah. Um, but obviously, there's also the running thematic of celebrity. Yes, and they're both not quite stars. Yeah, people who haven't quite made it. Yeah, one is on the way down, the other one's on the way up. Um, so, yeah, there's maybe something there. Um, the the Matt Helm films, which are like American James Bond <laughs> films with... Um, Dean Martin. Dean Martin are... Well, actually, I, I quite like the first one. And then, they, you know, and then this one was just, you know, it's just terrible, really. And you could tell that it's terrible from, <laughs> you know what you see of it yeah yeah um but she, but, but she got very good reviews for it Sharon Tate and, she, and uh, although I guess it's kind of interesting that you know she, she she got very good reviews and she's represented in in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood through this film in which she played a klutz that's her character she's the klutz it's character. not even her best known film or anything really <laughs> you know so um so why pick that one yes um Though it is very much in tune with all of those, you know, posters for Suzanne Plachette films and Elkie Summer films. And I mean, I think in a way, actually, one of the things that fascinated me about the film is that you always imagine that these films are just really trash B stuff. And what you see, actually, is they're just failed films. They're films, you know, they were mainstream films with probably big stars that did play in first-run houses, well, according to this film, mm. right? And they were just not successful, so they're, they're no longer part of our imaginary, though they're very much part of Tarantino's. Mm. Yeah. 
George Pappard films and you know Suzanne Plachette and Alki Summers and I was a Christopher something or other right like there are people who are names in that period right but who never became like I don't know Audrey Hepburn or Barbara Streisand or people like that right now they didn't become first-ranked stars but I imagine the films were probably you know major releases they weren't um, you know AFI releases yeah they weren't like you know the kinds of films that Peter Fonda made for um, Corman Corman mm. right yeah they were big studio releases so just flops yeah thoughts on uh, Brad Pitt in his shirt I, I sexy with the shirt or without it oh I think he's I think he's incredibly sexy actually I love I just love the way he moves I think actually um, you know he's aging well and age becomes <laughs> him because I think there was something about Brad Pitt for me anyway like you know all my mates would disagree with me but there was something about Brad Pitt in the, his 20s and 30s that you almost wanted to hit really like he was just so incredibly good looking it was like you know nature is so unjust right like yeah there was kind of um, was it that he was good looking and talented or just good looking no just good looking because actually I didn't think he was talented you know I yeah. remember I don't think anyone did for a while well and with reason you know, uh, because, for example, the performance that he got Oscar nominated for, the one in Twelve Monkeys, he's atrocious in that. He's overacting all over the place like a mo- a mad monkey, right? <laughs> so, so it was with reason that people had reservations uh, about him uh, as an actor. So, and it's that thing you can see how somebody could be very effective as a star, but not necessarily be a good actor. But anyway, I think, you know, he was so good looking that it was almost outrageous, right? And so, on the one hand, you you appreciated it, but on the other hand, you know, it didn't necessarily sit well, was actually kind of seeing him aging, uh, which, you know, because the thing about aging is also um, you, you, you've had a degree of agency in terms of what you've become, right? Like kind of, you know, when you're younger, it's nature, <laughs> like in a way, okay. right? You know, but actually, when you get older, you know, you, you mean you're to blame for this. I am to blame for the way I look. Jesus, <laughs> it's all my fault. <laughs> you know, kind of. <laughs> yeah. So I think. Anyway, I think he looks fantastic. I love the way he moves. I love the way he holds himself, and he gives a great performance. So. Mm. Yeah. Though not as great as Leonardo DiCaprio's, who I I think just the more I think about it, I think I think it's almost like genius, really, because it's not really noticeable, and he's obviously it's it's a skill to play somebody who's not very bright, you know. So he's not very bright, and he's not very talented, and yet he's moving through all of those different registers, mm. you know, throughout the film. I think it's an amazing tour de force performance for those. For connoisseurs, for those who, who who can pick out that actually, you know, in this moment he's giving this very stylized performance. In this moment he's in character. Yeah, in this moment mm. he's himself. Yeah. Something that kind of struck me is that, that those moments when he's on set, in the when he's playing the bad guy, um, but he's not uh, acting. Um, he's still kind of performing. And when he when he cries in when public. He, well, when when he reads the book next to the little girl. Uh, and he re- and he kind of in explaining the plot of the book, it basically becomes clear it's all about him. Mm. And he starts breaking down, 
Like it's kind of halfway between it being a genuine breakdown and you feeling like he's still performing his breakdown well, when he's in his trailer on his own. No one's there to see it. Well, his his kind of little freak actor. out, but he's performing his breakdown. That's right. You know, he's an actor. You know, you often actually, you know, one of the things that's very interesting is the the biographies of stars by their own children. <laughs> yeah. You know, talking about like, you know, yeah, to what degree is this really happening? To what degree is, you know, my mom acting what mm. she thinks is really happening? <laughs> yeah. For me, the audience, right? <laughs> so, and I think one of the one of the beauties of um, the Carver's performance is that he he makes you ask those questions as well, right? Mm. You know, but it happens in so many different ways. I mean, you know. His acting, um, the Steve McQueen film, is like hilarious, right? Like he's so oh, bad. Oh, the greatest guy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so, I mean, that thing about an actor doing bad acting, you know, in character, I mean, it's really, it's, it's kind of like a layer upon layer upon layer of performance, which is very deliberate, you know. To be fair, I will, I will back myself up and say that I don't think it's, I mean, I did actually, I did say it was kind of performing bad acting. I'm not sure that it is. I think it's it's a, it's performing a very obvious style of acting. Yes. But he does it very well, and I think even on TV, in the context, it would actually be a good performance. No, no. Let's be clear. I mean, I think you're right. I agree. It's a style of performance, and it's a style of very effective performance in some bits. Mm. Right, and then in that bit of the Great Escape, oh yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. bad performance. Oh yeah, yeah, right? yeah no, no. I was <laughs> only speaking there about the um, about the the TV show sequences that you okay. see. Well, but I, what I think is great about yeah. uh, DiCaprio's performance is that he gives you all of those different variations. Yeah, you know, and actually, it's, it's uh, with enormous scope. It's really subtle. Anyway, um, let's wrap this up. Do you wrap up? Oh, all right. So, um, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies. And we are on. All that shit I said before. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>